1: From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast.
2: Proud to be for everyone. More privacy, less NSA surveillance.
0: Don't fear tackling real shit.
2: LGBTQ.
1: Hey, welcome back. Social media these days is a pretty fraught place, with all the turmoil over fake news, trolling, hate speech, and discrimination often overshadowing the reason we use those sites in the first place to share and connect with other people, connections that can become a real lifeline for people all over the world, and that's especially true if you're part of the LGBTQ community, which is often the target for online hate and discrimination. Needless to say, there are powerful forces at work online, both within social platforms themselves and among groups of bad actors who manipulate them. But my guest this week, Jim Halloran, Chief Digital Officer at GLAAD, is on a mission to make social media and the wider internet a safer and more equitable place for the LGBTQ community. As you'll soon discover, he really has his work cut out for him. We talk about equal representation online, like how hate groups hijack social media algorithms to block LGBTQ content or policing algorithms that unfairly target LGBTQ creators, or the way in which something as simple as filling out a profile can cause big problems for lots of different types of people on the internet. I have to be honest, some of what I learned from Jim made me pretty sad, but it was also pretty uplifting to hear that Jim and everyone at GLAAD is out there staunchly defending the LGBTQ community on the internet. I think I speak for everyone at the Webby's when I say we feel quite awed by GLAAD and honored to bring you this story.
2: I am uh, the chief digital officer at GLAAD, an LGBTQ media advocacy organization. In fact, the largest one in the world. Uh, And I'm fairly new there. I've actually been there just about eight months. Before that, I was at Twitter, based in San Francisco, and their headquarters there. I was their head of global content management. Uh, and I joined the company uh, pre-IPO around the time of Arab Spring when the platform was this revolutionary new thing. I stayed there for about four years, all the way through the IPO, through the le- some of the leadership changes that they had. Uh, and then I left most recently after the last presidential election to go work at Glad. What were you doing
1: at Twitter? There's a, that's, it's like a, a vague title with a very specific yeah mission, I bet
2: yeah it 's it's, it's a very techy title, right, kind of a very jargony and vague, uh, so what I would actually do is I, I would lead the team that would actually build a lot of the infrastructure systems and tools that we had at Twitter, which is really studying the way that people take disparate pieces of content, put them together, and make meaning from that. So, if you think about the way that any of us kind of consume content nowadays, it's not the way that we used to do it. You used to sit down and like read a newspaper cover to cover, and then you would have your very informed opinion. Instead, right now, what you do on any given topic, you get your opinion from a few tweets here and there, and a YouTube video, and maybe a news article you see online, or a uh, Facebook post that you're onto sharing, or something like that, and you kind of put all of that together, and that equals the sum of the opinion that you have on that matter. So I was building a lot of the systems behind the scenes that would kind of track how all of that content goes together in ways that at that time we were using to figure out, like, how are people actually using Twitter? How are people talking about Twitter? How are brands using it? How are some of what we call the VITs, the very important tweet, uh, Twitter is using?
1: Oh, interesting. So like almost like user behavior studies in a way, like trying to understand what meaning people were getting out of scrolling through tweets.
2: Yeah. So exactly. User behavior focused less on like the functionality of using the platform and more on the uh, consumption of the content itself.
1: Oh, well, that was, uh, that's definitely a super interesting job, especially during that time at Twitter and today as well. Like, is there anything super surprising about that that you learned there that you've taken with you to your work at Glad?
2: You know, I think one of the biggest things that I learned is actually like how disparate the ecosystem of content is and where people are getting their opinion from. I think, you know, at, at that time, it was kind of just this wide open space that people were using when they were consuming content all over the place. And I think what I started to see over the time there is that those spaces and those echoes chambers are getting a bit smaller and smaller. And the platforms are responding to that and actually making it a bit harder and more difficult to get out of your echo chamber and to see other types of uh, thoughts as well.
1: So are they doing that on purpose?
2: What I think a lot of it is is actually the AI that are driving the algorithms behind the scenes that are just picking up on human behavior and are amplifying and exacerbating it.
1: Interesting. And so that's actually, I mean, we're going to talk about it in a second here. A lot of the work that you're doing at GLAD is is pushing back or dealing with some of these issues around how AI is affecting culture at large and specifically uh,
2: the community that you deal with at GLAD. Tell me a little bit about your role at GLAD. Uh, we really got our start during the height of the AIDS epidemic in the '80s, when we had to push back on a lot of traditional media and some very, um, some very sensationalist and inaccurate reporting that they were doing around the community and the needs that the community had at that very real moment. Um, what I do now at Glad is I kind of take that traditional media advocacy model that they've built and perfected over time. And I figure out how we can tra- translate that into the digital space. So what does it look like on social media? What does it look like on the internet at large? And what does it look like on the phones that we all have in our pockets? Mm.
1: So can you give me some examples of what that, like in a specific, even like a certain project or any sort of just general tasks, how does that manifest itself more specific, specifically?
2: Yeah. So there's multiple different affronts that we're kind of tacking that on. So um, for example, GLAAD sits on the Trust and Safety Product Council at Twitter. We're the only LGBTQ organization on that. And what we do is we actually uh, sit down with Twitter at the table with them a few times a year and we actually walk through the product that they've built and the policies they have around that product and making sure that it's really accounting for the users, the creators, and the content from for LGBTQ people in those lives and that it's doing it in ways that's very fair and equitable for them. So we do work with a lot of the tech companies actually coming into the rooms, working with them side by side. We're very much a resource for that. One of the other things that we do is actually take advantage of, all of the, a lot of the social tools that we have to actually uh, wage some campaigns and make sure that the work of GLAAD and the messages that we're trying to put forward are, are, getting sh- are getting light shown on them. So an example there would be uh, some of the atrocities that are happening in Chechnya right now around the concentration camps for gay and bisexual men that they have that weren't really getting picked up by mainstream press at all and really finding ways to use social media like Twitter to amplify those stories and really call on our government and our administration to kind of take some action and condemn a lot of what's happening over there. Interesting. And so
1: in relation to sitting on the Trust and Safety Council at Twitter, is that a role you play at other social platforms? Do all the platforms have some sort of gathering of important you know, cultural institutions to talk about those issues?
2: Yeah, so we have relationships with all of the major tech companies that you would think. So we have that formal relationship with Twitter. We also have it with Facebook. We sit on what they call their network of support. And we've done actually some great work with them. So we've done work on their platform around their real name policy, which is actually a policy that affects a lot of transgender people before and after they transition and they're trying to change their name. And we also work with Facebook when they expanded their gender options beyond the binary as well. Similarly, we work with Google and YouTube all the time. I was just on the phone with them a few days ago, actually. And then we do a lot of work with some of the more uh, large-scale tech companies that are a bit more behind the scenes, like Symantec and things like that. Can you talk about the role
1: that the general user interface plays uh, specifically in the LGBTQ
2: community? Yeah, definitely. So let me take a step back and see if this is kind of a good way to address this issue. So... When anybody is building tech, what they do is they create things called user personas. And those are like, who do we think are the people that are going to be using this platform? And how can we make it the easiest possible platform for them to actually use? And those personas are created by the people that they have working at those companies. And if those companies don't have a diverse workforce, they're not building a diverse set of personas. So a lot of times what you get is platforms that are built for one very specific worldview that don't work very well for other people's worldviews. So if you have a platform for a person that is cisgender meaning they feel in their body that they are the gender that they were born into and that the doctor assigned on their birth certificate the platforms work fine there's really no hiccups there but if you have a person that's transgender and throughout the course of their life they transition from one gender to another or they operate as a non-binary person somewhere in between the platform that they built was never really made to account for that and it creates all kinds of problems uh, in the In the example of Facebook, Facebook actually has some very stringent policies around what your name can actually be when you're creating a profile. A lot of times you have to send in photo identification, you have to prove that that's yourself. Um, you have to verify in numerous different ways that way. That actually makes it really difficult if you're a person that all of your government identification has one name on there, but you're presenting under a different name, a different appearance, or a different gender, and you want to actually change your Facebook profile, which the thing that all of your friends and family and even professional now know you by, to really match the person that you are. Right. And so in the past, before we were all creating
1: these identities on the internet, you would just be who you were and people would react to you and see you and make their own judgments and you would explain to people or talk to people or whatever it is. But now there's this identity that has certain boxes that uh, while we think about our identity online as something that we create by sharing photos and sharing videos and who we follow and that's all true, a lot of it is also created by what we type into these boxes, right? So there's the like what movies we like, but it's also like what your name is and what your gender is and who you're with or not with.
2: Exactly, right? And I think, you know, there's two fronts on that. Uh, One is the fact that that kind of becomes this living record of you and who you are and the data that kind of follows you around. And that can actually have some very real-world consequences for people if that data set is not actually jiving with the way that we as professionals or as the world, as, as, as the economy as a whole, deal with them. For example, if you start your career under one name and one gender and then you transition and the data doesn't follow, that's actually a flag for a lot of HR systems, right. and that's something that's not accounting for people.
1: And there's a lot of the HR systems are now using machine learning to help
2: analyze the social media profiles of people to determine whether they would be a good fit at their company too, right? Exactly, exactly. Machine learning is something that, you know, we see a lot of amazing potential in for marginalized communities like LGBTQ people. We also see um, a lot of red flags and things that need to have a bit more additional attention paid to. Are there any companies
1: that are just really good at these issues? Like, uh, you know, at the Webby's, we try and recognize... Excellence, um, and I would like to say that by talking about maybe one that's really good, we're not necessarily excluding anybody else who's really good. But you know, I think it's nice to give credit for companies that are doing a great job. Is there any companies that are doing like an awesome job at this stuff?
2: Yeah, you know, I think I think we see a lot of companies that are taking some really great steps forward. I think you know we've seen YouTube do a lot of work around restricted mode. I think what Facebook did to actually make sure that they're adding multiple genders in there and actually putting a policy around real, na- real names is fantastic. Uh, we worked with Twitter when they were actually reinstating some blocked words like queer onto their platforms. And actually most recently we reworked with Tinder. And I think that's probably the best case example for you. So we actually worked with Tinder to um, introduce the the transgender option onto their platform where you could say who you are, who you're interested in dating. And to date, I think they've had something like 125,000 matches with the new thing that they added there. So I I, I think Tinder and Match Group are doing a fantastic job of it. Interesting.
1: Is there something about the fact that there has to be an interface that at the end of the day makes all of this stuff just extremely difficult no matter what. So for instance, with the example you bring up with Tinder, uh, so there's male, there's female, and now there's transgender. A lot of people would argue that there's a ton of stuff in between and that people feel not exactly even any of those three boxes. Is there something just about even having dating sites like that that are just at the end of the day slightly exclusionary or preventative for from
2: being accessible to everybody? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think one of the things that I'm glad that we um, are 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 really excited to see is this growing, uh, this growing conversation around what gender is, right? And then there's not just two genders. In fact, there's not just this third gender called transgender, but there's an entire spectrum that gender is on, just like sexuality and what that means and what that looks like. But I think you know, just like we had this outdated mind thought that gender is something that's binary tech operates in the binary, right? It operates in ones and zeros. And anything that's in a gray space is really going to be difficult for tech to accommodate. So I think you know, yes, the interface is something that makes that especially problematic and challenging, and it's exacerbated by what actually happens with those interface discrepancies that way in terms of the way that data is being used to target people, to follow people around, uh, and even weaponize now that we see too. So I want to
1: talk about that in a second. Um, specifically, I want to dig into one example that I know of that you guys have been working at at Glad that I found really interesting, and I want you to share a bit about it. Uh, Recently, Deborah Messing was recognized at the GLAAD Awards in New York and had a really strong message of support for the LGBTQ community. Uh, While there was definitely a few side swipes at our current administration, it was nothing I don't think that anybody has ever heard before, uh, and largely was just like super positive. But when you actually go, I think GLAAD posted the video on YouTube, and when you go to look at the video, there isn't obscenely, I want to say there's a crazy amount of thumbs down. There's like 9,000 thumbs downs, which is just, if you know anything about YouTube, that's just, it's a lot, right? Um, What's going on there? Because there's no, I think there's not a lot of people who would watch that video who would think, who like knew anything about YouTube that would have guessed that there would have been naturally 9,000 thumbs down to that video. So and I know you guys are doing a lot of work on this. Can you share some of what you think and what you've seen happening specifically in that video and just general what's going on beneath the surface there?
2: Yeah, totally. So um, the, the the GLAD video of Deborah Messing's award acceptance speech at the GLAD Media Awards uh, actually happened just about, you know, two months after I'd started at GLAD. So we followed the typical process that we do. We, we record a lot of the shows whenever we can and put them online. And Deborah had a really powerful and compelling speech about her life as a Jewish woman, as a mother, as a feminist, as an LGBTQ ally, and really talking about um, the ways that this presidential administration is not supporting a lot of those communities as well. We put that video out, and we did the typical press pushes that we do behind it, and all of a sudden, we started to see the view counts just tick up and up and up and up on that video, and it it, it was kind of crazy. In fact, it was trending on YouTube for numerous days after that, and, and, and at glad we have a very robust social media presence, but it's nowhere near the kinds of major public publication outlets that you see pushing content onto the platform that are in those trending algorithms, um, and then as the view counts started to tick up, we saw, like you mentioned, the number of thumbs down. I think it's actually like three to one right now. Like there's three times as many down thumbs as there are up thumbs right now. And then what really started to kind of, um, turn a light bulb on my head when I start, started to read the comment threads. Um, and, and they're very, very, they're hateful, they're obscene, there's a lot of hate speech in there. But there was also a lot of words in there that, to me, was not just so much around somebody that has an issue with the LGBTQ community, or, or Deborah herself, or Glad as an organization. But there was a lot of words that seemed to have the vocabulary and the vernacular, vernacular of the alt-right community, the way that they organize. So we dug into this a bit more to see, like, actually, kind of, how did this happen? Let's back up and let's figure out what's going on here. And what we actually discovered was um, a playbook right out of the alt-rights guide that they have. And what this is is really a flow of information and the way that they are kind of inundating these platforms and owning a lot of the narratives. And what we see happen is that these organizers, they kind of start in the boards. They start in the 4chans and the reddits of the world. And we actually found the 4chan thread where they posted our YouTube video of Deborah Messing. And if you read the comment threads, it kind of just starts off a lot as some very sexist commentary about her and her appearance. It kind of goes into slurs, homophobic and transphobic slurs against the LGBTQ community. Then it kind of op- opens into these broader alt-right narratives around white supremacy and the men's rights movement and uh, privilege and things like that, before they finally decide in the last piece of the thread, like, this is something we're going to target. We don't like this. Let's go and target it. So you can it.
1: see the natural evolution of peop- of like how the conversation started with a few people and then how all these other people came in and just how the- it more and eventually became like a big well for them on the alt-right.
2: Exactly. Exactly. So you see that happen there. And then what you see is the narrative kind of trickles out of these boards, these message boards, and it kind of trickles into what we call like the alt-light media. And that's things like Breitbart and things like Infowars and a lot of those things that kind of take things, they make them a bit more sensationalist and, and a little bit more palpable for, for mainstream consumption just right. by the fact that they're presenting themselves as, as a legitimate news source before it finally trickles over into your newsfeed. And that's kind of where it gets a little bit more dangerous because those are things that like your mom sees or your neighbor sees, or somebody that maybe isn't quite sure what they think of an issue or a person or things like that starts to see these viewpoints that way. And so we kind of figured out the flow of how they actually identify pieces of content that they want to target and just dog pile on in these massive, massive numbers.
1: And is there is there like is there discussions of strategy within these boards? like let's all go over here and do X, or is where is the let's go to the YouTube page and I'll give it a thumbs down coming from or is it just a natural result of people essentially gathering together and hating on something together and eventually just sort of all doing that together is there is there somebody directing is there like a underlying group of you know tech wizards who are really like pushing the exact thing that will make it get flagged on YouTube and all that kind of stuff
2: uh, yeah, so I, I I think, you know, we've been able to trace things as far back as 4 chan and Reddit, but I think it's safe to assume that there are places in the even darker web that this is happening before that that we're not able to see right now, where there's a small group of bad actors that are extremely sophisticated and really devising the plan here. I think in terms of things like, let's go and downvote this, or let's go and put some hate speech there, I think that's kind of just become the status quo in their right. bag of tricks right now. I don't think we have to be super prescriptive about right. that. Right,
1: right, interesting. And so what's the... So you you see where it starts, you see the evolution of it, you see how it gets into light media and starts, eventually gets to YouTube. It's eventually trending, this specific example, on YouTube, which means probably not everybody in the United States who goes to YouTube homepage, YouTube homepage but a lot of people who do and follow, once it's trending, a broad array of things are
2: probably going to see it. Exactly. Once it's trending, it kind of tips off of just the audience that we as GLAD have built in our social media footprint. Uh, In fact, in two days, that video got more views than our previous video, which took two years to get that many views. So it has hundreds and hundreds of thousands of views that it got in this short two-day span. It's still one of the most popular videos, actually is our most popular video of all time that we have if you look at YouTube.
1: And so what's the impact of that type of video and of your content? on youtube because of all these like thumbs down what what ends up happening anything is it just a weird way of you guys end up getting more views from people who don't notice the thumbs down or does it have some longer term impact
2: no, there's actually some very real longer-term impacts, and it's kind of a two-step process. The first is, um, at, 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 at the outset, what they're trying to do is get that piece of content removed. What they think they can do is if they add enough hate speech into the comment thread, if they give it enough downvotes, if they even try and report our account, what they're trying to do is get that video removed and get the Glad YouTube account to have some strikes against it. And once some strikes are against us, all kind of things fall into place term, according to uh, YouTube's terms and conditions. Things like whether we can have our videos monetized, yes or no, how often we can post videos, if there's additional levels of scrutiny that our videos have to go through before they're put up that way. So they're just trying to add some more hurdles in our way and they're also trying to silence uh, uh, content that they don't actually like. But what we at Glad are more worried about is the long-term and cumulative effects of this type of strategy, which is that they are actually beginning to shape the artificial intelligence that runs things like YouTube. So if you take enough of these actions and you rack up millions of views on LGBTQ content, what you're doing is you're affecting what's happening in the black box of AI that rules the algorithms of what's showing there. And you're basically teaching that AI LGBTQ content is bad. Right. LGBTQ gets content, lots of thumbs down. Gets lots of thumbs down should be in a hairline trigger for removal that way. And that could ostensibly lead to things like what we saw in YouTube restricted mode, which is when that feature got launched on YouTube, 120 million LGBTQ videos were deleted from YouTube or I shouldn't say weren't weren't, weren't viewable under that feature.
0: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
2: Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt.
0: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com.
1: Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Talk about, just for people who don't even, there's some people out there who just don't even know what restricted mode is, I think. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, so YouTube restricted mode was actually a, a very great feature that they were thinking of launching. And what that is is kind of like a safe browsing mode. So um, in schools and public libraries that want to have YouTube available for people, they want to make sure that some of like the worst content out there, like pornography or terrorism or extremely violent content, is not being seen in public places or by small children as well. Um, so what they did is they kind of built an algorithm to say, let's let's look at all the bad content is and make sure that in this new feature called restricted mode, when someone turns that feature on, the bad content goes away. What they didn't really know or realize is that somehow that AI had put all LGBTQ content in the bad thing. Right. And what we're talking about here is very innocuous LGBTQ content. It's videos of people coming out to their grandmas. Right. It's videos of transgender people documenting their transition. A lot of it is like the vital resources that LGBTQ youth need that are Really isolated and disenfranchised in the small communities all over the world that they live in, and they look to places like YouTube to see a role model, right. to see a path forward and a vision of themselves. It's one of the, I mean,
1: it's in some ways one of the most brilliant and genius, greatest parts of the internet and YouTube, right? Is that so much of this type of content that people in small towns in the United States or all over the world didn't have access to, didn't have a community of people around them who were like them growing up now they, they had access to other people and those type of videos that they could feel connected with, right? And that, I mean, it's a yeah. really important thing and for it to suddenly now be, like I'm, I'm like getting upset just thinking about it, uh, just to suddenly like be in restricted mode is it's really, it's terrible.
2: Yeah, I mean... Let's be clear, right? Technology is a lifeline for LGBTQ people, for LGBTQ creators that use it as a revenue source, for LGBTQ people that need it to form connection that they can't in real lives, and for even just young LGBTQ people that want to see a positive role model that they can't see in traditional mode. We are are so in favor of technology and digital rights. I always say LGBTQ rights are digital rights and digital rights are LGBTQ rights. We firmly believe that but we are also very concerned that we see this kind of balance between risk and reward and a lot of companies and platforms and super users are pursuing all of the reward while not helping mitigate a lot of the risk. Mm.
1: So two questions. I'll ask the first one first, which is this is tremendously difficult for GLAAD, uh, but also I think, I would imagine you tell me if I'm wrong, at the very least, Glad has a seat at the YouTube table. You guys probably have a pretty good relationship with YouTube. You're a pretty large organization. You have some amount of communication that's not directly through like the YouTube website that you can probably go to and sort of help mitigate these issues and talk about them and figure them out. But there's millions and millions of people and smaller organizations or groups of people who don't have that type of access whose content is going to go through the same same problem, right? Like it's if they go, if there's a 16-year-old in you know, Duluth who goes and posts this video and gets lots of thumbs down on it and it becomes restricted or whatever it might be because of these essentially trolls – They're not gonna be able to call YouTube and say, like, hey, this isn't right. So it's gonna affect them too in a much in sort of in a way, much bigger way than even affects you guys.
2: Yeah, no, you're completely right. I mean, you know, we 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 have a great relationship with YouTube and a lot of the tech companies. We have a seat at the table, and we're a resource for them, and and we really, really value that relationship. Um, And and simultaneously, a a lot of the major LGBTQ creators on these platforms also have great relationships as well. So you're exactly right. It's the story of a 14 year old um, in Peoria, and, and kind of what is their experience like. And the first thing that we say to a lot of them is contact us. Contact GLAAD. That's what we're here for. At GLAAD, we receive reports of LGBTQ content being restricted and censored on nearly every single major major social media platform. I get them weekly in my inbox. That's what we're here for. And I think... Because a lot of these things are being built and happen in a black box, really the only way that we know about it is by having these people reach out to us and make sure that we can uh, really fight to preserve that digital lifeline.
1: And this is surely not something that's isolated to the LGBTQ community. It's It's what you guys are charged with and that's the community you're working for. I'm sure this is an
2: issue for all sorts of other excluded communities, right? Exactly. I mean, uh, we. I talk with my co- my colleagues that are doing work in the Muslim spaces, or immigration spaces, in women's rights, in racial justice spaces. Uh, these are tactics that um, a small group of very sophisticated back ac- bad actors are deploying against really all marginalized communities. Yeah. So, so what? I mean, the thing about AI, right, is that you said the
1: black box, which is that the software is making the decisions based on all the data it has. You, even a Google engineer probably can't tell you why this was deemed, you know, uh, bad hate content or excluded, and this wasn't,
2: right? Yeah, it's 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 very difficult, right? I mean, it it is a black box, but you know, the the way that we look at it is when I think of AI, there's really two ingredients that it takes to make AI. The first ingredient is a person, an engineer, to build that AI. And the second ingredient is a lot of data to actually put in that can be analyzed. And we need to look and be aware of checking for bias on both of those things. So on the people, on the engineering side, that's why you hear that diversity in tech is such a hot-button issue right Right. now. It's making sure that you have a staff staff that's actually building it. The engineering staff, the product staff, the policy teams that are actually building the technology represent the user base of that technology. And there's a lot of conversation around that right now. Where there's not a lot of conversation is around the data that's being ingested into that AI. And if you think about it, if you want to build the best AI, you want the largest set of data that you can have access to. And that's the internet. The internet is the largest catalog of human thought that's ever existed. But it's also the largest catalog of homophobia that's ever existed, and transphobia, and sexism, and racism. And bad AI is AI that doesn't actually account for that and try and mitigate some of that risk before goes into that black box because once it's in there it's in there
1: right so how does a how does a company like youtube or maybe like twitter since you work there how do they how do you account for that because it's it's like you said it's the best ai is the ai that is created with the most amount of data it's really really hard for people to go in and look at you know 100 million tables of data around some topic and determine whether or not it's biased or not so you almost need like computers to check to see whether it's biased
2: right Exactly. I mean, it's a very nuanced issue, right? We we can't just have the thinking that we're just going to put all the content in it's going to balance itself out because the internet is not a balanced place. Certain voices are heard more than others and as we see with a lot of bad actors gamifying the platform like we saw with our Deborah Messing video there's an outsized impact by a small amount of sophisticated people that are actually tipping the scales in their favor. So I think at GLAD some of the things that we recommend is actually taking a pulse of where things actually are at and not just assume you can dump everything in. And I think Google's actually invented a really great tool for this. They invented an API called perspective and it actually measures what they call the toxicity of content online. And by that I don't mean that like Google themselves the Google engineers think that's bad and toxic content. What they're saying is that's content that's uh, probably going to start up some stir up some stuff on the platforms people are going to react in all kinds of crazy ways to that. And it really is about flagging those things for for additional scrutiny and manual review. So if I go into that tool and I type in he is straight that's about like I would say 15% toxic, not very toxic. We're talking on a scale of zero to 100 here, right. right? If I type in "he is gay," that jumps up to about 70% toxic. If I change it to "she is gay," that's 90% toxic, and "she is gay and black" is almost a 100% toxic thing to say online.
1: Can anybody use this tool to see this, or is this you have to have the? Is it online
2: at, at Google somewhere? It's online. Yeah, oh, yeah. if you just Google, uh, if you Google Google and Perspective, yeah. it'll come up can scroll down on their website and type it in right there. It's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal tool. It's actually being used by places like the New York Times to moderate their comment sections.
1: So, and so the, they're not saying that if, you, that if you have these words that are 100% that they're going to, like, ban videos that have those words in it. I
2: think I would say is right. So, like, let's say you took our Debra Messing video, a transcript of that video, and you ran it through there. You would notice that she said woman and feminist and gay and Jewish and a lot of words that that tool would deem highly toxic. That doesn't mean that those words are toxic. What they mean is that those words are likely to attract a lot of bad actors. Okay. So they could know that actually the way that the AI is automatically scoring and ranking this video is probably being skewed. We need to investigate that. Got it. And if that layer was being placed on top of all of the data that was being used in AI, there'd be a lot more equity involved.
1: Got it. So instead of just saying, oh, there's 9,000 negative comments on this video. It must be bad. In this case, there's 9,000 negative comments, but it's also using these words which have been proven to a tr- a draw a lot of trolls, and so we better check to see what's really going on here.
2: Exactly. I mean, that's why we have protected classes, right? right? So th- so those content, those creators, those people, those classes can be protected. Is
1: that the main way that social platforms are starting to combat this issue? Or are there other techniques that you've seen platforms using to deal with this specific issue?
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's a few techniques. And I think personally, from my point of view, those aren't really enough. I think the first is, you know, uh, right now, we, you and I are chatting the same week that uh, the House and Senate Intelligent Committees kind of brought Russia, uh, uh, the Russian ad scandal into, into view that way. Um, I think one of the things we need to be talking about there is that these aren't policy issues. These are product issues. And they're not people issues. They're not policy issues. They need to be about the core product and developing things that way. Bad actors are always going to find ways to gamify policies. And you see that on platforms that have like a three-strike policy. You suddenly see massive networks of bots that all get two strikes but never three strikes. They're very, very smart about not stepping over that line. Right. So we really need to be cognizant of like actually addressing the problem at the root, which is the product that way. And then I think the second is it, it just can't all fall to automation. I mean, you, uh, you you do hear a lot of the companies, like Facebook was saying, they're hiring a lot more of manual ad reviewers. And I think that's a way to go. I think what we're kind of seeing right now is in instances where um, in the early days of things like YouTube restricted mode, there was literally a form that you would fill out to get your video reinstated, right? That sounds great in theory, but that's a challenge when you look at one of YouTube's talking points, which is that 400 hours of video are uploaded every second right. on that platform. Yeah, good
1: luck with the form, right?
2: Exactly, right? I mean, that's a man- Versus machine dynamic that we are never going to overcome. So we need to find ways that they can build intelligent AI to flag things that are saying this isn't working the way that we thought it to. Something is being stretched to its limits here, or gamified in ways that we wouldn't think, and a human being right now has to actually sit down, review that, and make sure that people are playing by the rules. You sort of touched a little bit on the issue of responsibility
1: there, which I want to ask you about because I. Th- you know, we heard you brought up the congressional hearings uh, that are ongoing. We heard some senators speaking out and really uh, trying to hold some of the lawyers and the people representing these social platforms that were on the Hill their feet to the fire uh, and really pushing them on this idea that they're responsible. But it seems like because all of this is happening and has been happening, that either they don't think they're responsible or maybe just the incentives aren't aligned in a way that make it, you know, incentivize them to be responsible. Who do you think shares responsibility for making sure these things work and are equitable?
2: I think you kind of hit the nail on the head when you talk about incentives, right? Because in the same week that we saw, um, you know, Congress really assigning blames to the social media platforms themselves, we also saw Facebook's earning call. And we saw that they blew away expectations on MAUs, on their revenue, on all of these fronts. And I think, you know, there's two sides to culpability here. One is, these are products that that are built by a company. Uh, They own those products. We all agree to their policies, their T's and C's when we sign on and use those things. So, of course, there's a certain... Level of culpability there, and they already have that with things like you can't post ISIS beheading videos or, you know, horribly violent or pornographic images on those sites. Like they've already assumed some level of culpability there. But I think the second thing is what these tech companies listen to is their user base. I mean, they trade in MAUs. Mm -hmm. That's how they're measured. And we need to demand a bit more from our technology, and we need to do a bit more that way. And I think you know, as I if I take a step back. Tech is a very high-risk, high-reward industry. It it always has been. And I think right now what we're seeing is an era where tech is pursuing reward at all costs right now, and there's a small group of people that are mitigating the risks. And right now we see that falling to NGOs and organizations like GLAAD. We see that falling to some policymakers that might not have a lot of the technical literacy to be doing a lot of this. But that is not an even balance of those two scales. It, th- there needs to be some, some more help mitigating risk on the tech side. And I'm not just talking about like a CSR team or a DNI team or things like that. I'm talking about product and eng teams that can actually step in and find smarter, more effective ways to do this.
1: Yeah, so I would, ass- I would assume these companies are absolutely capable of doing this, though. Maybe I'm wrong. So that's why I said the incentives. Is it? Do you think that we need to speak up as users more? Because I mean, we can definitely do that, you know, and we can have more of these conversations, which I think is important. I do. But there needs to be also some, like, blowing through your third-quarter numbers and, you know, crushing it on Wall Street. There has to be some part of this that's incentivized
2: in that way too, right? Yeah. I mean, I think... The first step is kind of raising this issue, right? Which is why we're so happy to be talking to you and the Webby Awards today. I mean, I think these are the beginning steps. These are also very complicated technical issues, and I think it becomes easy to talk over people's heads so their eyes kind of glaze over and they kind of think, ah, that's someone else's problem, not ours. But I think what we really try to do is really humanize these issues for our community, for LGBTQ people, so they understand a lot of the ramifications of these. And I think that we try and uh, sit down with the tech companies as well and maybe point out some unintended consequences of their platforms. The other part I want to follow up on that you mentioned is the team that builds it.
1: And you mentioned that the, the hot button issue that people are talking a lot about diversity in tech, and that's true. And there's a lot more conversation about that these days, which is really great. A lot of the conversation is around it being fair for people to get those jobs, which is absolutely awesome and super, super important. I think the part that point you made which is the second not the secondary point but the point you made which is also just as important is that the product is better when the the team is diverse and it's not like my pizza app is better it's like this social platform that millions and millions of people are using to come together and do all sorts of things will break down and do serious consequence to the world if you do not have a team of people who understand all the different types of people who are going to use it right it's really consequential it's not just like I'll do a better job at selling, you know, scarves on Amazon if I have a diverse team. It's it's really meaningful to like the whole world. It's not just it's not just their business.
2: You're totally right. I think, um, you know, going back to my days working in Silicon Valley, one of the things that I loved about my job is every day you walk into an environment of people and you know you're changing the world. And I think, um, you know, I entered that environment at a time, like I mentioned, that was Arab Spring when they were using it to announce the birth of the royal baby, when people were tweeting from space, these things. And and these were the tools that were building the future for us. I think the way that we're seeing them weaponized right now – I think no one really saw that coming, at least not anyone that I was talking to at that time. So I think it's catching some people off guard. Yeah. And I think we need to look at uh, having a, an ethical conversation a way around the, the ways that these tools are being used and ways that we can actually mitigate and address that.
1: What are some of the ethical safeguards you at GLAAD are advocating for specifically in these tools? I mean, there's the clearly the concept of a diverse team and a team that represents the people who use it is one thing. Uh, making sure the data are the best that they can do uh, to trains the AI is 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 not biased. Is another are there other steps
2: and other things Glad's advocating? Yeah, you know I I, th- I think there's a few things that we talk about. I think you know you're um, I think it's really about being uh, intelligent and responsible with the AI that you're building. And if we are going to have these black box algorithms that rule our news feeds, rule the way that we're able to make meaning and consume content, then there needs to be some checks and balances about what is good AI and what is bad AI. And um, Kathy O'Neill wrote a book called Weapons of Math Destruction. She knows a lot more about this than I do, but she really kind of lays out a lot of the ground rules there. And a lot of it is, first of all, you have the right to know that AI versus a person is making a decision. And that's something that people don't actually know. Like right Right. now, most people don't know that if you have a home loan, if you have a credit card, if you've applied for a job at a major corporation or a major college or university, an artificial intelligence probably made that decision, at least in terms of the first step for you. There was not a human being involved there. There needs to be some notification around that. The second is there needs to be kind of a clear explanation of what the rules are here. Like what, what things are being weighted and what isn't being weighted? Are they taking in fair amounts of information and fair t- data sets to actually make a decision based on you? And then the third is there needs to be some kind of feedback loop. If you have an issue with that AI, if you feel like it was something like there's bad data in there or that it's not actually you that they're accounting for, there needs to be some kind of redress that you can go and petition for a lot of those things. So I think at the end of the day, what we're advocating for is transparency, transparency that AI is in use, transparency of how they're using it, and transparency is of what you can do about it if you feel like it's been unfairly enacted against you.
1: Your Twitter bio says that you fight robots. <laughs> I, think, and I think we've gotten a little a bit of sense of that, of that on this conversation, but how else do you fight
2: robots? You know, um, I, I, th- I think there's a lot of things that we do. Um, I, I mentioned artificial intelligence because I'm a huge nerd and that's like a big thing that I do there. But I think a lot of the way that we actually do is like point out the ways that these things are going to be used to kind of r- rule people's lives in all of the current areas that it's intersecting with humanity right now. I think when people think of big topics like artificial intelligence, they kind of think of things like some sci-fi Blade Runner type of dystopian future and they don't realize that that's actually already at play in our daily lives right now. Yeah. I think another thing that is a huge passion project and something that we're working very hard on at GLAD is around net neutrality and ensuring that we all have an open, uh, uh, free access to that information superhighway that's not being weighted down with a political administration that might not like certain kinds of views or is feeling like you can't pay what they want you to pay to actually have that.
1: Jim Halloran from Glad, thank you so much. You are doing incredible work. We're so honored to have you on the podcast. I know everyone here at the team is, is just is really excited that you guys needed this and you all did this and all the work you're doing. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to Jim for talking with me and to everyone at GLAAD. If you want to learn more about all the amazing work GLAAD is doing for the LGBTQ community and discover ways to support the organization, head to Glad.org. That's glaa dorg And you can find Jim on Twitter at Jim Halloran, J-I-M-H-A-L-L-O-R-A-N. If you enjoyed the episode, would you tell your friends about it or leave us a review? Or hey, if you're a huge fan, do what I do. Just take your friend's phone and sign them up. It's like a podcast gift, right? Our producer is Sebastian Aday, Our editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Research and writing by Michael Charbonneau and Jordana Jarrett. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Grays is the Roth IRA you started when you were 22. Thanks for listening, and don't hesitate to get in touch. I'm on Twitter as DMDLikes. See you next week.
0: Planning for your next trip?